Good evening, everyone. Um, we're a couple minutes early, but looks like you're all here in anticipation. <laughs> so tonight, uh, my privilege and honor to introduce Joseph Goldstein, who's, uh, in case you don't know, he's one of the founders of this place, a uh, teacher of all of us here on the teaching team, and a uh, great guy. <laughs> so... Uh, the format for this evening, there were so many questions, a lot of great questions, and we clearly, there were probably 40 or 50 of them, so we, we aren't going to get to them all. Um, I, I will be uh, reading the questions for Joseph, and in a couple of uh, instances, I've combined two or three, and I'll read those. It'll be one answer for, or who knows what we'll get, <laughs> but something, but I will uh, read two or three of the notes uh, on a couple of occasions, so... Um, yeah, I think we'll launch right in. So the first question I have chosen is, <laughs> dear to my heart, how about some tips on walking meditation? Uh, <clears throat> first, just to say, it uh, feels delightful to be here with you all. Uh, I haven't been teaching the three-month course for a number of years now. So it's always great to kind of drop in, <clears throat> at least for an evening like this. So in terms of the question, walking, I think the first thing I want to say is that very often people have created an internal hierarchy about the importance of various aspects of the practice. And for many people, sitting is at the top, walking is next, and everything else is a distant third. Just as an experiment, maybe you know, for half a day or a day, it might be interesting just to reverse the order, you know, and to give primary importance to all the other activities in the day. Were you giving the same attention to that as you do to the sitting? And then the walking and then the sitting. Uh, which doesn't mean you shouldn't come to the sitting. You know, uh, Because for me, the walking practice has been as insightful and some of the most interesting insights happen in the walking. So this is all by way of giving it a plug. <coughs> uh, one of the reasons it's so helpful is that in many ways that's what carries over the most into your life in the world, you know, because we're moving around a lot. And my experience has been that having done, I don't know, thousands of hours, countless hours of walking practice over these many years, that mindfulness of taking a step it almost becomes the default, you know, just from having done it so much, so out in the busyness of the world, I just came back from a few days in New York, doesn't matter, walking down the street, and if we've established the habit of being mindful in walking, <clears throat> it's right there, you know, in the midst of our daily life. So it plays a really important role. Okay, some tips. <clears throat> One of the biggest ones, and maybe you know, some of the other teachers have expressed this already, uh, 
But for me, there was a huge shift in the walking, which had to do with how I was languaging it to myself. Because often in the language we use for meditation instructions, there's a lot of watching language. Watch, notice, observe. So this watching language, just in the way the language is suggesting, it's as if we're up here somehow looking at something. That makes the walking a lot uh, more difficult. And so at a certain point in my practice, and it took years to kind of somehow intuit this, I just changed the language to feeling language, to feel the movement rather than watching the movement or observing the movement. Because the feeling is from the inside. You know, it's like dance or tai chi or yoga. So we're inside much more embodied than if we're walking with the sense of observing it, because that's from the outside. Does this seem clear? I mean, and as I said, maybe you've already heard this, but for me that was, that was a really transformative moment. So as you walk in, and it doesn't take much. I mean, it's, you don't have to have deep samadhi to make this switch. <coughs> it's just remembering as you're walking, simply feel it. But let's just do an experiment. If you would just move your arm and just feel the movement. And you might move it at different speeds and just feel it, that's all. Does it take any effort at all? I mean, it's so effortless and easeful and presence because feeling is from the inside. And it's like we're already embodied. So it just makes the practice a lot more enjoyable. Another, and this is a more subtle aspect, that very often as we're walking, even as we are feeling the sensations of the movement and the touch, there's very often a subtle overlay of somewhere in between an image and idea of foot and leg. So we're feeling, we're, we're being mindful and we're feeling the movement, but very often there's just that overlay of moving the foot or moving the leg. We don't actually feel foot or leg because there's no sensation called foot. There's no sensation called leg. That's a concept that we're overlaying on top of the actual sensations that are being felt. And the reason this is important, and it points to, it points to an even uh, <clears throat> larger understanding the importance in our meditation when we drop from the level of concept to direct experience. Because the concept, foot, leg, body, 
the concept doesn't change. So when the mind is attuned more to the concept than to the actual felt experience, we're not gaining insight into the momentary changing nature of things. So even as we're being mindful in the walking, and we are, we are connected somewhat to the actual sensations of movement, pressure, you know, heaviness, lightness, whatever it may be, I, I found it really interesting just to keep an eye out for that overlay. Okay, so this is the last part <laughs> of this little sequence. One very dramatic um, shift that came in my walking from doing this is at different times I would start noting I was using the noting and the walking for periods of time. I would start noting the elements rather than lift, move, place, or whatever noting you're doing. And so, for example, I would just start noting air element in the movement, earth element as I touched, and then just air, earth, air, earth. And I was struck by a very dramatic shift of understanding. Because when I was simply noticing the movement and the touch, again with that slight overlay of foot or leg, and all of this is on an extremely subtle level, it leads almost automatically to a sense of my foot and my leg. And so right there is the beginning of the creation or the strengthening of the sense of self, of I. It's very unlikely, if you're noticing air element or air, earth, it's very unlikely that that would transform into my air element or my earth element. You know, that, that's not what the mind did. And it was born out in my experience of doing this. You know, it dropped the mind into a very vivid experience of selflessness, you know, which is often, as I'm sure you've, a lot of it has been talked about this, you know, over the last six weeks, but for many people, it's, it's the most counterintuitive, you know, because it's like we live as a self. You know, that's how we're operating in the world. And so this whole teaching on non-self really takes a lot of settling into and exploring. And I found in the walking, it was like an immediate experience. Oh, that's all there is. It's just air, earth, air. Earth. So I just uh, would encourage you, if you're interested, to experiment a little. These, these were really transformative aspects for me in the walking and led to a real depth 
you know, of understanding. Um, I guess the third helpful hint is just do it. (laughs) Don't shortchange the walking because it has just huge benefits both in the formal practice and the carryover into our lives. Any suggestions for how to work with the comparing mind? Yes. <laughs> One of the things I love about kind of doing these kind of question-response things is that almost every question is about something that we've all experienced. <laughs> You know, and it just shows the commonality. You know, the particular storyline may be different, but the basic patterns in our minds, they're all the same. You know, and to me, that's one of the joys of practice because the more we understand ourselves and our own minds, the more we understand everybody else because our minds are really working in the same way. <clears throat> Is there anybody here who has not experienced the comparing mind? <laughs> you know, it's. So, a couple of things. One is to realize that comparing is a manifestation of what in Buddhism, uh, in terms of the defilements of mind or the unwholesome states of mind, it's the mental factor of mana, M-A-N-A, which is generally translated as conceit. But in English... Conceit doesn't really capture what mana is because this comparing can be, we can feel ourselves better than or equal to or less than, you know, so the comparing can take many forms. I found it really helpful when there's a certain psychological, emotional pattern that comes up again and again, that uh, deeply conditioned, to actually recognize the particular defilement or mental factor out of which those thoughts are happening. So, for example, when there's comparing mind, and I see it, I like. I actually like to use the Pali word, just mana, mana, because if we use the English word, I think for many people, we would, for example, label it as comparing, you know, and it's not unlikely that even in the naming of it and recognizing it, there's a slight judgment. You know, oh, this is not good, this is bad, whatever. When I use the Pali word, it just it keeps it very impersonal. It's, it's just this factor of mind doing this thing. Right? And so there's much less sense of imbuing that pattern with a sense of self, with a sense of I. It's just mana. It's just mana, mana-ing. So I'll just I'll share a story with you because recognizing it in this way 
I find it so really uh, simple to um, disengage from it. So (coughs) last year or the year before, um, I was doing a self-retreat in my house. And I don't know that you know of Bhikkhu Analaya, but he has a, you know, Kuti down at the study center. And he was doing a self-retreat at the same time. And for those of you who know him, he's really disciplined. You know, a hardcore yogi, a great renunciate. I mean, he's full on. So I was sitting in my house I knew he was down there on retreat. And one afternoon, I was just frittering away some time. I didn't even know what I was doing, but it was just wasting time. <laughs> and then I had the thought in my mind, I'll bet Analio's not doing this. <laughs> and then I started to get down on myself. You know, oh, yeah. I mean, he's, he's such a good yogi, and I'm just... But fortunately, and I think this is the fruit of, you know, many years of practice, it didn't take too long till I recognized, oh, that's just mana. That's just mana. And as soon as I just recognized it for what it was, in this totally non-judgmental way, just seeing it's this factor doing this thing, oh, mana, the whole thing fell away. And the whole emotional residue, you know, feeling bad, fell away. So that kind of precise recognition of the particular defilements that are causing whatever the pattern is, you know, is hugely helpful and it's quick. You know, the the liberation from it is not a long process. We don't have to be in 10 years of therapy to find out why we're doing so much comparing and da 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 to, Oh, mana. And interestingly enough, mana is one of the very last defilements to go. You know, even, even after we have uprooted desire and aversion, which would be a huge, like that's at the third stage of enlightenment. So that itself is a huge, huge accomplishment. Mana is still there. So this is by way of saying, might as well make friends with it. (laughs) Because it's going to be there, and it's going to come up in a lot of different ways. But I've found now, and this this is also a huge helpful mental frame. Now, whenever I see it, I'm delighted. Because I would rather see it than not see it. And on top of that, every time I see it, oh, mana, mana falls away. Oh, I'm working on our hunship now. (laughs) You know, so it's like it gives it an extra little boost of encouragement. Uh, Yeah. So we can transform it, you know, into real understanding of how our minds are working and how we get caught and how we can be free. 
and it doesn't take much. That's that's the beauty of this. Um, so don't make it more of a problem than it is, which is another whole teaching. <laughs> <laughs> My first teacher was Anagarika Munindra, and very quirky teacher, but a great teacher. And one of the phrases he used, I heard it thousands and thousands of times over the years. He would just say, be simple and easy about things. Just be simple and easy. I think that was one of the best teachings I got from him, you know, because we tend to exacerbate whatever is going on in our mind and build whole stories and you know, self-judgment and comparing and all of that. But you see how easy it can be <clears throat> when we don't personalize it. It's just mana. Okay, it's doing its thing. See it for what it is. Gone. Until it comes next time. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> I believe Venerable Analayo sleeps in a coffin. Have you taken up that practice? <laughs> We're going to compare our beds. <laughs> Goes for a little more comparing. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I thought I'd cheer you up. <laughs> It seems that everything I do is a desperate attempt to fix myself. Even the practice itself seems to have the agenda of fixing. How do I untangle from this mind's deep belief and desperation to fix? Well, I think in a way this ties into the last question. Because even if we're not comparing ourselves with somebody else, we could be comparing ourselves with some uh, idealization of where we think we should be and then comparing ourselves to that. Uh, So one thing would be just to try out and... uh, when you see that pattern arising, you know, of wanting to fix. Uh, and this would be an experiment because I have not applied it in this particular context, but as you raised the question, uh, <clears throat> it seemed very similar. Uh, <clears throat> whenever you see the pattern arise of the fixing mind, maybe to see that as mana, because you're comparing your present experience to what you think your experience should be. Uh, and it may be that simply recognizing that, oh, that, that's mana again, to see if that, the energy, you know, of that fixing mind falls away in recognizing the particular mental factor that's giving rise to that thought. There's another I think really important um, <clears throat> distinction, and it's two different mind states that people often conflate, and because of that conflation can create a lot of suffering. 
And it's understanding the difference between aspiration and expectation. And so for me, that's a really important distinction. Because aspiration, we can have an aspiration for lots of beautiful things, you know, to become enlightened or to become more compassionate or more loving or less judgmental. So that's our aspiration. And the aspiration sets a direction. You know, if that's our aspiration, then we learn one way or another, okay, well, what's the path that will lead to that aspiration? Expectation is when we're holding on to an expectation that our current experience should be a certain way. And when it's not, then we feel frustrated or despondent or discouraged. But we can have an aspiration without expectation. You know, where the direction is clear, we understand the path, but we understand the path is not just linear. You know, it gets better and better and lighter and clearer. It's not like that. It's as you well know. You know, it's up and down and up and down. And even now, after all these years of practice, you know, mostly it's just rolling along pretty smoothly. Sometimes I'll have a sitting, and it's like I've never sat before. You know, my mind's just going off on something or wandering a lot. Or, and in the beginning, more toward the beginning, I'd get really upset by that. You know, I'm putting all this effort in. You know, look what's happening. At this point, I just know so well, having been through a million ups and downs in the practice, both from sitting to sitting, day to day, year to year. Sometimes just going through a really difficult, challenging time. And sometimes it's just going great. So the more we realize that, then there's a lot more acceptance of whatever the current experience is, realizing that the path is not particularly about particular experiences. It's about how we're relating to whatever is happening. So if you, somebody came up to you, and uh, you you just finished a sitting, and they asked you, well, how was your sitting? Probably if you were concentrated and your body felt at ease, you're pretty mindful, Oh, I had a great sitting. And if you were sitting there having been restless and bored and your body hurt, oh, it's a terrible sitting. That's a completely erroneous assessment because it's not about pleasant or unpleasant, easeful or difficult. It's about how mindful we are of whatever it is. You know, so if we're struggling and there's enough mindfulness to put a really big frame around that whole experience, you know, discomfort in the body or the restless mind or whatever it is, 
and we're relating to it with mindfulness, with awareness, that would be a more skillful sitting than having really easeful time and being attached to it. You know. Are you getting this? This is really hard because we're almost hardwired. Pleasant is good and unpleasant is bad. You know, but from the point of view of liberation, that's a completely erroneous assessment. And the Buddha gave he gave one teaching that is so it makes me sit up straight <laughs> because it, it's so direct and challenging. He said, as long as there's attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is impossible. Well, that's striking at some conditioning, you know, because as I say, we're almost hardwired to just go for the pleasant and avoid the unpleasant. And here's the Buddha saying, the free mind, it's like space that can contain everything. You know, pleasant, unpleasant. Can we cultivate that equanimity and that awareness, which is just with each of those experiences? And none of them are permanent. You know, they're all part of the passing show. So... Somehow you could hold all of this. Uh, I think it would help uh, free the mind from that uh, wanting some imaginary other experience than what we're actually having, uh, which is a lot of dukkha. That's a lot of suffering, you know, and. Even to, just if, if you can imagine energetically what it's like, kind of the wanting mind, the wanting something, what that would feel like, and then <clears throat> not wanting, just open. Energetically, can you feel kind of the relaxation of that? I know there are a lot of questions, but each question could be an hour. <laughs> I just want to share another, <laughs> because this also was a, uh, I was on, again, was, this was another year, I was on self-retreat at home, sitting, and there's one line that we find often in the discourses, <clears throat> and it's a line that often people would hear and get enlightened, just hearing this one line. So listen carefully. <laughs> it, people miss it because it's so simple. They miss the implication. <clears throat> so the one line, again, is repeated frequently. <clears throat> Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. So I was sitting and kind of really into the practice. And this, I remembered this line. The line came to mind. But rather than it being a line like, 
somehow that my intellect was considering. You know, it wasn't so much up here. I, I could almost feel it embedded in the flow of my experience. You know, so I'm there, and it was, it was you know, pretty clear sitting in the flow of changing phenomena, and then right from within it, oh, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away, and it was very obvious that that's what was happening. But then my mind articulated the import of that line. So I'm sitting, things are just moving along, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away, and then my mind, therefore, there's nothing to want. And this is in the context of the meditation practice. Because whatever it is that I may be wanting is going to also pass away. And so again, it was just one of those moments of dropping back from this just deeply conditioned pattern of wanting, the craving. It's the second noble truth. You know, the cause of suffering is craving, is wanting, even in a meditative sense. And so just something so simple, you know, recognizing in the midst of your being in the flow of phenomena, remember, whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. Therefore, there's nothing to want. I could just feel the mind drop back into a non-wanting, which is the essence of the practice. Um, so I hope, you know, with some of these stories, I've, a big point in them is that in some way, the formal practice that we do in intensive retreats like this Uh, it's like we're tilling the ground. We're preparing. We're preparing the ground, the soil, you know, where there's a little, some degree of inner space and flexibility. <clears throat> and when the ground is prepared, like you've been doing over these weeks, then just so many of these very simple things can really have have a profound impact. You know, the insight becomes so vivid. Uh, and now sometimes I'll just I'll just use the phrase, oh, there's nothing to want. You know, and even when I'm not aware of the wanting being there, very often that phrase will come to mind, and I can feel myself relax back from a wanting that I wasn't even aware of. Uh, simple example, some... One time I was just watching the breath, Feel, feeling, feeling the breath. There's nothing to want. And I realized that even in that simple feeling the breath, I was with each breath wanting, wanting a little more calm, wanting concentration, wanting something, you know. And just that remembrance, nothing to want. You can feel the mind open, feel it become more free. Um, yeah, so just these, these very pithy teachings, you know, can really be liberating. <clears throat> I'll read a couple of uh, questions that are, are closely related. <clears throat> 
since daily life unsettles the mind so much, is there really hope of awakening as a layperson? Or would one eventually need to devote their life fully to the path? Dear Joseph, what are the odds of waking up? Do we have a real chance? (laughs) One more. Who or what gets enlightened? What happens to that which gets enlightened after it's enlightened? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So my new favorite definition of enlightenment is lightening up. (laughs) And I've seen this over many years now. I've been practicing 50 years or so. And I can see that that's just what the process, it's lightening up. So what does lightening up mean? Through practice, and I'll speak a little more about what I mean by through practice, we become less and less self-referential. You know, instead of everything revolving around the I and me and mine and what I want or what I like and what I don't like and all of that, the lightening up (coughs) has to do, you know, on a a more superficial level, we could say, just not taking ourselves, our minds, so seriously. And on a slightly deeper level, beginning to weaken the hold of the sense of self, you know, that is basically running our lives until we begin to see through it. You know, because that sense of self, that sense of I, is just what feeds the desire and the aversion, and I want this and I don't want that, and I like this and I don't like that. It's all rooted in the sense of self. So over, over time, and this is, you know, over years of practice, that sense of self we begin to see through it and let go of it because it's only the sense of self that's there. It's not that there is a self which is there. The sense of self comes because we're not seeing things correctly. So as we're seeing things more clearly, the sense of self begins to diminish and we get lighter. And our life becomes a lot simpler and easier. So another, to answer that first question, I think it's absolutely possible, if not to become an arhant or fully enlightened, to experience different of the stages of enlightenment, even to very high stages, uh, as a layperson, and you know, there are lots of examples of people who have done that. Uh, perhaps you know, one of our most beloved teachers uh, was Dikama, you know, this extraordinary woman uh, from India who had a huge amount of suffering in her life, and 
went on to to realize high stages of enlightenment and you know of samadhi and her mind was just amazing as a layperson you know she was a mother a family so it's definitely possible i think what for me has been the arena of lay life which has been the most fruitful in terms of the move towards liberation has to do with the attitude we have toward the experiences of suffering and distress in our lives, right in the midst of them. You know, whether it's relationships or the world, (laughs) there's plenty of dukkha in the world now, or, you know, the, the condition of our bodies. We all, just as human beings, we just go through a lot of times of dukkha. Just as an aside... I recently came across a definition of dukkha. I read it online someplace, and I don't even remember who it was from, but they were defining dukkha. I loved the... It said, the inevitability of unwanted experiences. I loved it because that just captures it. <laughs> you know, and it, it's so obvious so obviously true. (laughs) If we're alive, it's inevitable that we will encounter a lot of unwanted experiences one way or another, you know, externally, internally, which is basically a statement of the first noble truth. But what I found to be really interesting and so helpful and meaningful is to take those times when my mind was really distressed or suffering from one thing or another, and instead of looking to the external causes or assumed causes of what was making me suffering, I've come to a place now whenever my mind is Mostly, <laughs> you know, in a state of distress, it piques my interest because I want to understand what's going on in my mind that's causing the suffering. So I'm going to share a teaching that Saito Pandita said. It's a very challenging te- teaching, and um, until it's so, you may have it an. You may have some react. This is a, what do you call it? A trigger warning. (laughs) You may be triggered. (laughs) But not, I think, once, you know, it's explained a bit. He said, we are 100% responsible for our suffering. That's an amazing statement. We are 100% responsible it does not mean that we're responsible for some of the horrendous conditions that may arise in our lives due to other causes or other people. 
It's not about that. What it's saying is that how we relate to whatever suffering is present, that's what we are 100% responsible for. And how could we not be? Who else could be responsible for how we are relating to what's happening? And there are even stories, and from the Buddhist time and also in current times, people might raise different kinds of, well, what about you know, just these extreme situations, being, people being tortured, and these you are know, horrible, horrible situations. But there are some really inspiring stories of people who are very well-practiced, but the ones that come to mind at the moment, uh, you know, the stories of uh, some of the Tibetan lamas who were imprisoned in China, imprisoned, tortured, horrible, you know, just really horrible. But many of them, you know, when they came out, would talk about how even in those circumstances their minds didn't go to hatred, didn't go to aversion. They were taking responsibility for their own minds, even in that extreme. Now, hopefully none of us will be in that kind of situation, but certainly, you know, in the more ordinary the more ordinary dukkha of our lives. I've just found it incredibly uh, insightful to, when my mind is suffering, to take interest in it. Okay, what's going on? What am I holding on to? What am I pushing away? What am I not allowing? There's something in the way we're relating to what's happening. I'll just share one story of this this goes back like 40 years. This is a long time ago, but it was a powerful experience. I had a really close friend who at one point did something that was just a complete betrayal of trust. You know, and I don't know how many of you experienced that feeling of betrayal, but it is a horrible feeling. It was so painful and so much suffering. This is somebody that was close to. So then I was on, again, a self-retreat, and this was was really surfacing, you know, and just a lot of feelings and thoughts. But again, at a certain point, it just piqued my interest. Okay, what is going on? in this situation that's causing so much suffering. Because it felt like a knife in the heart. You know, that was... And then as I investigated, and it took a little time, but as I investigated, I realized that for that knife to hurt, it needed a place to land. And if I could let the knife go through... And it basically lands on the sense of self. You know, it hit, it hit that sense. Of, and then, it, no, if there's no place for it to land, it was totally okay. 
the suffering, the suffering really disappeared. And over the years, I'm friendly with this person. You know, we see each other occasionally, and and I don't have any ill will. I see him more clearly, you know. But it was such a such a lesson in something that can be so painful, but still the suffering is our responsibility. This is this is making sense to you, uh, because it's really a powerful teaching. And and lately, I've been using the phrase you know, to express the importance of this: "Don't waste your suffering." You know, and we waste it by either drowning in it, or feeling sorry for ourselves, or blaming other people or situations for it. That's a waste, you know, and more suffering. But if we actually investigate it within ourselves, we are actually practicing the Four Noble Truths right there. At that point, it's not theoretical. You know, we're in the suffering. And we examine and we see the cause. And we see the end. And we see so right there, we're actually practicing this path of liberation. This happens more in our life in the world than on retreat. You know, and so that's why I wouldn't make a big distinction in terms of our walking on the path. That our life situation can sometimes provide really deep and transformative understandings, liberating understandings. Um, did I answer all all of the collection there? Or? <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> the Buddha's powers of changing people's perceptions or seeing their past lives are we to take these at face value I find my skepticism of this makes me question other teachings well this this was really a challenge you know with myself and colleagues of my generation uh, many of us practiced in India uh, or Thailand. Uh, and in, in those cultures, the idea of rebirth and other planes of existence, it's just part of the culture. There's, there's not, it's, not a, it's not problematic. You know, in those cultures, people grow up with it. Hearing the, these teachings and then coming back to the West, of course, it's not part of our culture. <laughs> You know, and very often people are skeptical. Of, uh, so it was it was challenging to know. Okay, well, how much do we talk about that, or just not talk about it? Uh, for myself, when Munindraji would be talking about rebirth and the planes of existence, particularly the Deva worlds, uh, I loved it. <laughs> I really liked it, uh, but. But he would always, when he was teaching Westerners, he would always say, you don't have to believe this because believing it is not essential for awakening. You don't have to believe it. It's true, but you don't have to believe it. (laughs) (laughs) So that was his... I think quite happily the whole path 
of liberation. We can walk on the path practicing those teachings which we can verify for ourselves. It does not require belief you know, in the cosmology, true though it may be. <laughs> uh, and so I, I would just take what's useful in the teachings and those things that you don't believe or have question about or doubt about, just put it aside. You know? and what I would suggest with that, though, and this, this is a subtle point, though, I think it, it has... Uh, it has important karmic implications. And even that, you know, some people may not really have much belief in that. But there's a difference. So there's an expression, uh, I think it was Coleridge, the poet Coleridge, who used the expression, the willing suspension of disbelief. Because we can be as attached to disbelief as we are to belief. And so with things that we don't know, I think it's a much wiser frame to say, I don't know. And just stay open in the not knowing, rather than it's not true. Because saying it's not true implies that you know. And you don't know if you don't know. You know. And the reason that the, the, the subtlety in terms of the karmic implication, to say something is not true within kind of the Dharma perspective that is true is really just a expression of wrong view which is an unwholesome mind state. To say, I don't know, is not wrong view. It's just acknowledging that this is beyond my current level of experience. But I think that's a very easeful way of just taking the teachings with useful that you can relate to, that you can verify in your own experience, and simply stay open you know, to whatever else is in the teachings that you don't yet understand or, or believe, um, but just keep an open mind. <laughs> you know, one, uh, the Buddha talked about different kinds of attachment, like to sense pleasures and uh, to the sense of self, but he also talked about attachment to opinions and views. And it is quite remarkable how attached we can be to our opinions about things we know nothing about. <laughs> but, I mean, just look at our culture. <laughs> People have a lot of strong views and opinions about things they know nothing about. But we do the same thing on, on whatever level. So that would be an interesting part of our own internal working to uh, observe. These might be the last ones. We'll see. Uh, they're kind of, kind of, kind of related. I'm going to read them both anyway. 
Dear Joseph, what has helped you most in difficult times? And what's your take, finally, after all these years with the Dhamma? They are related. (laughs) (laughs) So as as some of you may know, uh, and I think this is not, especially not uncommon in the West, you know, in people practicing the Buddhist tradition. But over, you know, a lot of years now, uh, I studied with a lot of different teachers, uh, mostly in the Vipassana tradition, but some little foray, you know, into some Tibetan teachings, a little bit of Zen. Uh, so I have a little bit of experience, variety of traditions, but mostly with just a lot of different teachers. And what's really important is, for me, what has been important, well, what's in common? Even though the methodologies are different and the teachings may sound different and... Even the metaphysics, you know, the basic philosophical frameworks sometimes are different. And I had this come up very strongly, particularly uh, having done a lot of Vipassana and then just doing a little bit of Tibetan practice. The metaphysics, they were saying different things about the nature of Enlightenment or the nature of awakening. And I felt really torn. You know, it's like, you know, these great teachers were saying this, these great teachers were saying this. And in my mind, I was really struggling with the question who's right? Because it felt like my whole spiritual path depended on my answering that question. I was tormenting myself. I was on a, I was on a two month uh, Tibetan retreat, and it was just you know a couple of things in it were just contrary to everything I'd been practicing for thirty forty years, and I was really struggling. You know, there's a, there's an image of people practicing in Zen the koan method. Uh, the the image they use is like in, in working with the koan, it's like having a hot iron ball that you can't spit out and you can't swallow. You know, so it just, you know, just, <laughs> you're just grasped by this, by this koan. Well, for me, it was like a koan. You know, the who's right became a koan. And, it, and it, I was really struggling and really suffering with that. And then at a certain point... I realized it was the wrong question. It's not a question of who's right. And I framed the resolution of that question. And this would refer to working with all kinds of teachers, even within one tradition, you know, but different teachers, different methods, different methodologies. I framed the resolution in kind of a phrase. because I studied philosophy in school, so my mind is oriented in that way. 
So the phrase that resolved it all for me was metaphysics as skillful means, not as statements of truth. So when I began to hear these different teachings, rather than framing which is true or which is right, just to take the teachings as skillful means. So then the question is, skillful means for what? And here is where all the traditions of Buddhism are unified. And that is skillful means for non-clinging. That's the essence of the free mind in all the Buddhist traditions. You know, whether it's the Burmese or Tibetan or Thai or whatever. And, and in the text, uh, there are many places where the Buddha will say liberation through non-clinging. So then it becomes really simple in hearing a teaching, and if we put it into practice to some extent, we really want to see, is this leading us to less clinging, less holding on, less attachment, or not? If it is, then it's serving us. And if it's not, then we're not on the path to greater freedom. So in a way, it's really simple. And now when people ask me, well, what practice are you doing? You know, what tradition you're in? See, I'm practicing not clinging. So it's really simple. Although, again, as Munindraji would say, it's simple but not easy. Because those are two different things. It's not complicated. And so going back to just what I was talking about a little earlier in terms of not wasting your suffering, it's always about clinging to something. And the Buddha, the the teachings, (laughs) I'm in awe of of the teachings and the Buddha. It's incredible to me how with what profound clarity he understood the nature of the mind and body and the nature of the cause of suffering and the path to freedom. And, you know, we have a hard time stringing five breaths together. (laughs) (laughs) And he understood all of the different mental factors and how they related to one another. I mean, it's unbelievable, you know, the clarity of it. And so as part, just this is one tiny little part of that clarity. Okay, non-clinging. He gave a whole list of the things we normally cling to, you know, in case we're, we're not exactly sure, you know, what we're clinging to. And it's pretty simple, you know. He said, in a way, the most obvious one is clinging to sense pleasures. You know, we're, we're attached to, we like pleasant sights and sounds and feelings in the body and you know, all the senses. So that's a place to look. Okay, are we attached? Are we clinging to them or not? Has, has that become 
the motivating energy in our lives to just accumulate more and more pleasant experiences, which it is, I think, for a lot of people. So that's one arena to look at. The other, as I just mentioned, attachment to views and opinions. So just as you go, it's not so much here where you're not uh, communicating with one another, but when you go back into the world, for those of you who are leaving soon, uh, it would be really watchful, really interesting to watch you know, in your discussions, you know, conversation with people, how often are we attached to our views and opinions about something? The third level of attachment doesn't really affect us that much, I think, but very much part of Indian culture at the time, attachment to rites and rituals, you know, as a vehicle for enlightenment. But I don't think in, in our Western culture we have too much of that. Uh, but the last one, and this is really what it takes a lot of interest to explore is attachment to the view of self. You know, because that's, that's in a way uh, just at the center of all the other attachments. Um, and the doorway of understanding selflessness, which is hard, that this takes time, this... You know, impermanence we can all... It's not hard to understand and even experience. And it's not hard to understand and experience dukkha. But selflessness really is counterintuitive. You know, so it takes a lot of interest to explore this. But the doorway to understanding it... And and there are actually many, but we can... we can understand selflessness through a refinement of our perception of change. So the more we see, both in our meditation practice, but in our lives in general, just the changing nature of everything, so our understanding of selflessness begins to open up. And in our experience of dukkha, I'm winding up. (laughs) I just want to give one little uh, elaboration of what selflessness means because it's the translation of the Pali word anatta, non-self. But one of the manifestations or experiences of that is the ungovernability of phenomena. That if there were a self, we could say, let me not have any more anger, no more desire, as if we're in control. But anatta means things are following their own laws. It's not happening chaotically, happening lawfully, but not based on our will. It's based on the appropriate causes and conditions for things to arise. If the causes are there, phenomena will happen. If causes are not there, it won't. So things are ungovernable. That's one of the doorways into having a deep intuitive experience of the selflessness of this whole process. And... 
Okay, I'm going to end up with this, <laughs> but it's in a little piece. One of the reflections that the Buddha suggested we um, do daily, that's how, that's how important he thought it was. It, reflections on the universality of growing old and sick and dying. And the reflection is, whatever has the nature to grow old will grow old. Whatever has the nature to grow ill will grow ill. Whatever has the nature to die will die. And then after each one of them, there's a tagline. And it's the tagline which is the kicker. And I am not exempt. Whatever has the nature to grow old will grow old, and I am not exempt. To grow ill, I am not exempt. To die, I am not exempt. Now, intellectually, we all know this, but we don't believe it. (laughs) There's some deep feeling, I think. I certainly see it in myself, and I imagine we all have it, that... Until it hits us in the face, we think we are, or at least that we should be. <laughs> and so often, you know, I'd be on retreat doing some walking, and all of a sudden my knee will start hurting. And immediate reaction why? <laughs> and then I am not exempt. <laughs> this is what happens. So. Just that, to, to drop into the ungovernability of phenomena, that things are happening due to causes, not because there's a self-governing at all. So just that, which comes up so much in our daily lives, we are deepening our understanding of selflessness, of non-self, which is really a tremendously liberating uh, understanding in our lives. Um, So maybe just leave you with two mantras. Don't cling, and I am not exempt. (laughs) I think that will serve you well all the way to full enlightenment. (laughs) So thank you. Why don't we sit for just two minutes and let all the words uh, settle. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you all.
getting a contact high just (laughs) from all of you. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.